Would you please remain standing as we read God's inspired and errant infallible word? Please turn with me this morning to the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 6. We're going to be reading the verses 4 through 9 this morning. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 through 9. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk, to the, talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. You may be seated. This morning as we go to prayer, we want to remember our missionaries, Ed and Carla Trenner, who are serving with On Mission Partners. Ed and Carla work to engage the local community for the gospel. Let's pray together. Our great and heavenly Father, where do we even begin to describe your eternal power and your divine nature as we recount in your word from 1 Chronicles 29? Yours, O Lord, is the greatness, the power, the glory, the victory, and the majesty for all that is in the heavens and the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head over all. Father, instead of turning our attention upon you, we find ourselves constantly distracted by the lures and the baubles of this world. It's amazing to see how we wander. And it's no surprise that you compare us to wayward sheep in need of a shepherd. And oh, what a great shepherd we have in Christ Jesus. Where we deserve death and judgment, you have supplied mercy and grace unto eternal life. Help us, Lord. Help us, Lord, to recognize our great need and by faith be freed. As we read in Hebrews, no creature is hidden from your sight, but all are exposed before you and must one day give an account. I pray, Lord, that each one of us here this morning would come to this realization and contemplate our standing before a just and almighty God. So, Father, we thank you for your word and for this church body with whom we are blessed to share in enjoying fellowship. We thank you for the work that you're doing here in this church, in our families, in our communities, and we, to bring glory to your name. We thank you for the freedoms we share to freely worship you in this great country. And also, Lord, this morning we ask for grace and wisdom for Ed and Carla Trenner as they endeavor to engage the local community for the gospel. Lord, provide them with opportunities to represent you and to share the truth of the gospel with whom they are in contact. We praise you for the work that you've been doing through their lives through the many years of ministry. Lord, we pray that you would continue to mold and shape and transform us here at Grace Church into a people that rightly represent your righteousness and who strive to live lives worthy of the gospel. Please give us hearts to encourage one another as we continue to strive in this sin-broken world Give us wisdom to know when to speak and when to remain silent. Lord, I pray for healing in marriages that are broken, in families that are struggling, as well as a salvation for our children. Lord, we pray for our local, state, and national leaders that they would lead with wisdom and discernment in ways that honor you. 
There are so many that are suffering with physical illness or injury, enduring hardship or stress, and dealing with loss. Lord, we pray for your strength, your comfort, and your peace. May you receive all praise and glory. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.
Our text this morning is Proverbs chapter 22, so if you'll turn to Proverbs 22. My name is Matthew Holbrook. I have been attending this church now for 48 years, um, and it's starting to grow on me. Um, Maybe give it a few more years, but no, I I love this church. I love the people here. One of the things that uh, I have learned in the course of life is that... When you become a parent and have kids, your kids ruin your life. They really, really do. Yes, they are an abundant blessing, but your kids ruin your life. You know, when you're growing up and you're going through various stages of life and that are are difficult or just normal stages of life, you stress and you worry and you're anxious, but when your kids go through those stages, it's a million times worse. And then you have more than one kid, and it just multiplies and multiplies, and people here have five, six, seven, eight, nine. I don't know how you can handle all of that, but you're like your kids just ruin your life, and it's because we worry about them, we're concerned about them, and we worry about them about nothing more than their souls. And so that brings us this morning to Proverbs chapter 22, and we'll be looking at verse 6. And it says, train up a child in the way he should go. Even when he is old, he will not depart from it. This is an interesting verse because it's the one verse in the Bible that when we go to say what it means, the first thing we say is what it doesn't mean. We say, train up a child in the way he should go. Even when he is old, he will not depart from it. And what it doesn't mean is that this is not a promise. It's not a guarantee. It's not assured. It's not a formula. It's not always going to work. And all those things are true, but I want to know what does it actually mean? Not what does it not mean, but what does it mean and how do we apply that in our lives? This is a proverb and proverbs are simple moral statements or illustrations that highlight and teach fundamental realities about life. They're not promises, they're not guarantees, but they are truths that govern how God has designed life to normally work. And it says to train up a child in the way he should go, to train up. And like with any kind of training, this requires the trainer to be knowledgeable about what they are training and who they are training and to know themselves and their own strengths and weaknesses along with the strengths and weaknesses and personality type of the person they are training and to marry all of this into an approach that will bring about desired results or to train up Our children, the way they are to go, the way to go. This is the the road, the path, the journey, the direction 
the manner, the habit that they would follow. We're to train children in the right road, the right direction, the right manners, the right habits, the right ways. And there is only one right way, and that is God's way. We are to train our children to live life according to God's ways. And the essence of the proverb is that if we do this, especially starting early, and if we do it wisely and with skill and prayer and dedication, then God's normal course is that they will continue to follow the Lord even as they grow old. And so the natural question comes up then, well, isn't God sovereign and don't my kids have free will? Well, yes, God is sovereign and there is a free will that your kids have. And God will call whom He will call, and so we pray and trust our children to Him ultimately. But that's true about everything in life. In my business, if I'm committed to a bad business plan but still believe that it's good, chances are my business won't do so well. Is God sovereign? Could He make it do well? Yes. He could intervene and bless me even if I have a bad plan or a bad strategy or bad execution. And the reverse is true. I could have a great plan and great execution and... God is sovereign, and it may not work out how it should. But we know that the way that God has ordered the world, a good plan will usually produce good results, and a bad plan will produce bad results. And good execution, good results, good execution, bad execution, bad results. And so we want to be wise and seek to do what is consistent with what is good and right while still understanding that God is sovereign over all things. And this is true with parenting. God's normative ways in which He exercises His sovereignty is that He uses natural means to accomplish supernatural results. We know that God blessed the offspring of Abraham like no other people. A baby born into a Jewish family in Old Testament times would be much more likely to see spiritual blessing in their lives as opposed to one born into a Canaanite or Amorite or Jebusite family. Yes, God is sovereign, but He uses natural means to enact His sovereignty. And oftentimes that sovereignty is in the form of the family into which a baby is born and the wisdom that family exercises in raising that child. And so we want to raise our children in the Lord. We want to do it biblically and wisely. Wisely because parenting is not a paint-by-numbers approach. It's not always the same. It requires much wisdom. And so in Ephesians 6, when we see Paul says, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. He's saying, bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord, but don't exasperate them. Don't provoke them. You have to know where you're going with them, but then you have to figure out in every situation and with every child, how do you get them there without provoking or exasperating them? And so it's with a certain amount of fear and trepidation that I come this morning with this message talking about parenting and the results of parenting can touch raw nerves, rip off old scabs, but there is hope and encouragement for us as we look at what God says, and I pray that we will be encouraged together and that we will encourage each other. There are tangible truths that we can grasp and trust, and there's grace Grace that brings success despite our mistakes. Grace that forgives. Grace that restores. Grace that strengthens. Grace that grants peace. Grace that teaches. 
For the past 23 years, I've had the privilege of leading the youth ministry here at Grace Church, and for the past 12 years, I've had the joy of leading our college and young adults ministry. I love the young people at Grace, yet they're also a source of great pain. Seeing any of them wander from the truth, wander from God's ways breaks my heart. And I'm not generally an outwardly emotional person, but my heart breaks and the tears come when it comes to the souls of our young people. So parents, I am in this with you. For those who have struggled or are struggling in parenting, I don't want you to hear condemnation or accusation. I want to bring the Bible as a source of wisdom and hope and direction and to affirm what it says by laying the Bible on 23 years of observations and experiences with the young people in this church. And I've seen too many well-meaning parents who love the Lord with all their hearts but firmly hold to convictions about parenting that might not actually be helping guide their children in healthy ways. And so today I want to point to God's truth, look hard at what He says and apply practical wisdom with a heart that is burdened with all of you for the souls of our children. Before we go further, I just want to encourage parents, especially of younger kids, seek out older parents who have raised godly children who are walking with the Lord. There's tons of practical considerations in parenting and more than I can get into in a sermon. So look for godly parents who have walked before you and lean into their wisdom on the practical stuff, knowing that every parent and every child is different. No one sits, fits eye approach fits. So ultimately, we pray for wisdom to practically apply what is good and healthy for our kids based on who they are and how we are personally equipped. But we are a church. So let's strive together for the gospel for our children. There are some clear biblical objectives that are true for every parent and every child. And so our job as parents and as a church is to find ways to get our kids to those targets. And what are those targets? Well, to build an outline for this morning, to see those targets, I want to look at some passages specifically in Deuteronomy, so you can turn there, where God addresses what we should say to and teach our children. And if you are not a parent, don't go to sleep this morning. These objectives, these targets that we're going to outline tonight are are those, those targets that should mark the life of every believer. These should be the targets for your life. These are the measurements for any healthy believer. So these objectives apply to everyone. So we start this morning with what George read previously in Deuteronomy chapter 6, starting in verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. What are we to teach to our children diligently? Who the Lord is and that they should love the Lord. Teach your children who the Lord is and teach them to love the Lord. That's the starting point for training your children. They need to know and love God. In John chapter 1, verse 18, it says, No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He, speaking of Jesus, has made Him known. Jesus is God in the flesh. It is, Jesus, it is in Jesus that we know God. We are to know who God is and to love Him. And parents, 
we're not just to speak in our home exclusively about a generic God. We are to point them specifically to Jesus. Teach your kids to love Jesus. So objective number one is we put together our outline, and we're going to unpack each of these a lot more as we go on this morning. But number one is love Jesus. Teach your kids to love Jesus. And then in Deuteronomy chapter 4, starting in verse 9, it says, Only take care and keep your soul diligently, lest you forget these things that your eyes have seen, and lest they depart from your heart all the days of your life. Make them known to your children and your children's children. What are you to make known? How on the day you stood before the Lord your God at Horeb, the Lord said to me, Gather the people to me that I may let them hear my words so that they may learn to fear me all the days that they live on the earth and that they may teach their children so. And skip down to verse 14. And the Lord commanded me at that time to teach you statutes and rules that you might do them in the land that you are going over to possess. Don't miss that what it's saying here is make them known to your children. What is to be made known is tell them how when God said to them, gather the people to me. And then what happens when God's people gather? God is calling parents to tell their children what happens when God calls them to gather. They gather to hear God's words, to learn to follow Him, to learn His statutes, to learn how to live. And we see throughout Scripture indications of what we should know about our obligations as a part of the family of God when we gather. Ephesians 5 talks about marriage, which is the foundation of the family. And it is in that context that Paul gives the admonition to sing to one another in songs, in hymns, and spiritual songs. And where does that happen? In the church, that we sing to one another. Ephesians 5 describes what marriage should look like. Paul says that marriage is to be the picture of love between Christ and the church. So marriage, and ultimately the family, is to be all about the love of Christ and the church. So marriage and the family should be rooted in love for one another, but on a transcendent, even higher level, it should be rooted in a love that reflects Christ and the church and love for Christ and the church. If we love Christ, we're going to love the body of Christ. So teach your children, number one, to love Jesus. Number two, to love His church. And then in Deuteronomy chapter 11, starting in verse 18, it says, Fix these words of mine in your hearts and minds and tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Teach them to your children, talking about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. Teach your children God's word. Let God's Word wash over them and color their vision. Let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly and then pour that Word into them so it dwells in them richly. Let them see the world through the lens of the Bible. Teach your kids to love Jesus. Teach your kids to love His church. Teach your kids to see everything through a biblical lens. Those are our three points of our outline, and I want to walk through them a little bit more. So number one, teach your kids to love Jesus. If you don't have kids, love Jesus. We read, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And we know that Jesus is God. He is the light of the glory of God. We see the light of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So if we are to love God, we love Jesus. Colossians 1 verse 15 says, He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God. Jesus is God. And so we are to love Jesus. But what does that look like? Too often, Christians make loving Jesus sound like 
romantic love. And that can get a little bit uncomfortable. What are we talking about when we talk about loving Jesus? But there in Colossians 1.15, it says, He is the image of the invisible God. And then the next phrase is, the firstborn of all creation. It's interesting that we get this description of Jesus as being God in the flesh, and then it flows immediately into a familial language. He is the firstborn. It's not that Jesus was the first one created. Jesus was never created. He is infinite. But the firstborn is the one who has the right to the inheritance. Jesus has the inheritance of the universe. But it's described as being the firstborn. And Romans 8.29 says, For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. Jesus is described as being the firstborn among many brothers. In Romans chapter 8, verse 14, For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God, for you do not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and what? Fellow heirs with Christ. Loving Jesus has nothing to do with romantic love. Rather, it's like the love we would have for a perfect older brother. A brother that we look up to, respect, admire, want to be like, want to follow. Teach your kids to love Jesus in that way, to look up to Him, respect, admire, to want to be like Him, to follow Him, to love Him. When your kids are born and you have, you have one child, another one is born, you tell one kid, you say, you, you need to love your brother. Why? Because he's your brother. That's where we can start even with telling our kids, you love Jesus like you would tell your kids to love their brother. But we can talk about this even in other ways, and sometimes we miss opportunities to properly explain what it means to love Jesus. I love my mom's tacos. When my mom makes tacos, everybody comes running. I love her tacos. Why? Because they taste really good, they satisfy, they fill. Can I say I love Jesus like I love my mom's tacos? The answer is actually yes. It's just the magnitudes are different. I'm going to love Jesus a lot more. But Jesus is the bread of life. Taste and see that He is good. He is satisfies. He fills. Or we could say that we love a song. I love, I love the song we sang this morning, Christ is Mine Forevermore. And for me, like songs are, like what makes a song is a really good bridge. And is there anything better to sing than, Come rejoice now, O my soul, for His love is my reward. Fear is gone and hope is sure. Christ is mine forevermore. I love that song. I love that bridge. I say I love Jesus in the same way. That song speaks truth to my soul, lifts my eyes, fills my heart, gives hope. You know what Jesus does? Lifts my, speaks truth to my soul, lifts my eyes, fills my heart, gives me hope. Talk to your children about loving Jesus in ways that make sense. Help them to love Jesus. Help them to see Him as the ultimate treasure. 
like the man who went and sold everything he had to buy the field so he could have the treasure. Help your kids to see and know what it looks like to love Jesus, that he is the source of all real joy. Peter says that though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible. Loving Jesus is tied to inexpressible joy. Point your children to inexpressible joy in loving Jesus. Show them that obedience flows out of loving Jesus. Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. Teach your kids who Jesus is and show them what it looks like to love Jesus. Point number two, love his church. The church is the body of Christ, and if we love Jesus, we're going to love his body. And this is where things get a little sticky this morning. 23 years of youth ministry, and I can tell you the number one predictor, just observing the youth in our church, if, a, if somebody is going to grow up and continue to follow the Lord as they become an adult, the number one indicator is if there are signs that show that they love the church. If they love the church, chances are they're going to continue to walk with the Lord and follow Him as they become adults. And there is a difference between loving the church and being involved in the church. I'm not talking about being involved in church. I'm talking about loving Jesus' church. So what does that look like? Well, we start with Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24. Let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And then in chapter 13, Hebrews, verse 17, obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. People who love the church love to gather for worship with God's people. They love to be in submission and accountable to the church, to let those who have to give an account for their souls to do so with joy, to be known and to know people in the church. God uses Natural means to accomplish the supernatural. I believe that God uses the church to preserve His own, to hold on to them supernaturally. So teach your kids to not just be involved in the church, but to love the church. And single parents, all the more, encourage your children to love the church. And as a church, we want to come alongside and walk with you and run with you to point your kids to love Jesus John 13, 35 says, By this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. 1 John 4, if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Our brothers are not simply nameless, faceless people out in the world someplace. Yes, your brothers and your sisters in Christ are all Christians, but we are called to specifically love the brothers and sisters that we know. And where do we know them? In the church. It's easy to love the ones you don't know, but it's with the ones that we do know that we show the world what love is. And so we are to love Christ's church. And again, it's different from being involved. Lots of people are involved in the church for reasons that have nothing to do with loving the church. Teach your children to love the church. What does that look like? Well, the starting point is to love to gather with God's people out of a love for Christ. So come to church on Sunday mornings with enthusiasm. 
Make it a priority. Be excited to come. When our children were little, we always made it a point on Sunday mornings to make Sunday mornings happy and fun and not to have any arguing or grumbling. And I'm sure I drove my kids crazy because I would be obnoxiously happy on Sunday mornings as everyone was getting ready. And then even more obnoxiously, which they hated even more, is that I would sing at the top of my lungs as we would drive to church. And when I would get to the chorus, I'd be singing all by myself, and I'd say, everybody now, and I'd continue singing all by myself. But I wanted my family to know that going to church together was the highlight of the week. I think one of the biggest obstacles we have at Grace Church of Orange with this is this plaza outside. Yes, we love each other, and so we love to fellowship, and we love being together, and the plaza is great for that, but not at the expense of gathering to worship together. Loving each other in the body of Christ is so much more. The gathering of God's people is important to God, and we have opportunities to fellowship and to be together in multiple ways every week, before and after the service to go to lunch together after church, home groups, before and after midweek gatherings, small groups, men of the Word, women of the Word. And you're even allowed to make arrangements to meet up with people from church outside of the context of church. But there are 75 minutes each week that we set aside to gather as the body of Christ. We gather in love for Jesus and for His body. What are we saying to unbelievers who come to our church, they come on time, and they see that there are 10 people in here at the beginning of the service? What are we saying about the priority of gathering with God's people? And what's more, what are we saying to our children about the priority of gathering with God's people? Clearly, there are exceptions, but we're talking about what the pattern of our life is. This is baseline for biblical love of the church, making it a priority to gather with God's people to worship and hear His Word together. Loving God's people must be rooted in the spiritual value in the church, not in the social value. If it's the social value, kids will find other ways to fill those social needs if they don't see the spiritual necessity of gathering with God's people. Another enemy that we have to be aware of among Christian families especially is the temptation of family idolatry. I know that's kind of a harsh way to put it. But do we make our families an idol? We want to raise our children in the Lord, but in the process there can be a tendency to make our families the center of the universe, to make our family take priority over everything else. Our obligation to our children is not to make our family the highest priority. Granted, our families are super important and should be valued as such. But if we value our families, we will want to be sure to prioritize everything in the right places. And priorities are ultimately known by what sacrifices we make. Is church consistently sacrificed for the family? Or does your family make sacrifices for church? God's Word gives direction to love our families and to raise our children in the Lord, but it doesn't talk about our families being prioritized over everything else. In fact, Jesus says just the opposite. He says that in heaven, there will not be any marriage. Our family will be the family of God. That's the priority. And we want our children to be a part of that family. What message do we give to our children when we we put temporal families 
consistently as the priority over our eternal family. This doesn't mean that we ignore, abandon, or shirk our responsibilities to our families in favor of ministry. Not at all. This mistake is what's resulted in the stereotype of PKs walking away from the faith. And thankfully, that's not the case at Grace. But it does mean that we give careful and prayerful consideration to how do we cultivate in our children a love of the church and a priority of the church and that they would love to gather with God's people without abandoning our responsibilities to our family, but rather seeing the cultivation of this love and this priority as part of and woven into the fabric of who we are as a family. Again, my observation is families that do this well are the most consistent indicator of whether a child will walk with the Lord as they become adults. 1 Corinthians 13 gives us a picture of what does love look like, and I want to look at how does that apply to the church. It says, love is patient and kind, does not envy or boast, it is not arrogant or rude, it does not insist on its own way, it is not irritable or resentful, does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. How does that apply to loving Christ's church? Well, first of all, love does not boast. Church is not a stage. It's not a place of performance, whether that's in ministry or showing off your gifts or showing off how well your children can sit together in church or, or sit quietly in church or showing off any of the spiritual gifts that you have. All of these things can be good, but when we see church as a stage to show these things, we are not loving the church. Love does not boast. Love does not insist on its own way. Your love of church is not based on what you are allowed to do, what ministry you are given an opportunity to pursue. We love the church even when we don't get to do what we want. Love is not tolerating the church if we don't get what we want. Love joyfully serves and participates even when we don't get to do what we want. Love is not irritable or resentful. Do we ever talk about people in the church or in leadership in an irritable or resentful way. Do your kids see or hear that? Love rejoices with the truth. Do you rejoice in the truth taught in church? Love bears all things. Do you choose to not be offended by something someone at church does, even when you rightfully could be offended? Love believes all things. Do you believe the best in others? Do you assume the best in others at church? Or do you make negative assumptions about people at times? Love believes all things. Love hopes all things. Do you really hope for the best for people in church, especially spiritually? Do you have an emotional investment in the spiritual health of others at church? And love endures all things. Do you endure difficulty in church dynamics when they occur and maintain a joyful heart in the process? There are times in the church when endurance is called for, and it's a mark of love. We want to love the church, and so we endure. COVID called for this type of love, called for endurance. Not everyone was on the same page with how to respond to COVID. Many people endured, even when things were not being addressed like they thought it should be addressed. But many also did not endure on both sides of the equation, and they fell away from the church. They went other directions because they were not willing to endure. Maybe their love for the church was in question. And for those who are parents, what message are we sending when we aren't willing to endure 
for the church. We are to love the church. Love endures all things. What do your kids see and hear for you, hear from you about how you love the church? Are you modeling and teaching them to love the church? What about as it relates to church leadership? Paul tells the Thessalonians to respect those who labor among you and to esteem them highly. Do you, do you speak well of the leadership at church? Do you speak well of Pastor Mike? Do you point things out so that your kids would esteem him? And at the end of verse 13 in 1 Thessalonians 5, it says, be at peace among yourselves. Do you allow strife to creep into relationships? What are you showing your kids? What are the rest of us who don't have, if you don't have kids, your kids are grown, what are you modeling to the children at Grace about how to deal with conflict? God is so serious about this. In Titus 3, he says, as for the person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful. He is self-condemned. Don't cause division in the church. Don't cause strife. Don't cause conflict. Show your kids what it looks like to love the church. Teach them to love Christ's church. Teach them to love Jesus, to love the church, and to teach them to see everything through a biblical lens. 1 Timothy chapter 6, starting in verse 13, Paul tells Timothy to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which He will display at the proper time. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords. Teach your children that Jesus is king and that we are to keep His commandments. But do our kids know the joys of following Jesus or do they only know the obligations? Depression and anxiety are very common amongst young people who grow up in the church. And I think it's often rooted in that they know the obligations to obey, but they see it as a performance that they can't keep up. And so they reject following Jesus, but they still know the truth and they just can't do it. And so there's this cognitive dissonance and it leads to depression and anxiety. And we see this in the kids. Do they, do they see law in you or do they see the love of Jesus coming from you? Do they see license in you or do they see the love of Jesus in you? We want them to love Jesus, but in loving Jesus, we want them to see that He is King and see everything through a biblical lens. And in that, they need to know that the world is fool's gold. The world is fool's gold. 1 John 2 says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life, is not from the Father but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. Teach them that the world is fool's gold. The first time that I wore virtual reality glasses, I was with a group of guys at Winston Weber's house. The guys took turns with the glasses, and what they saw when they put the glasses on was this tall building, and then the object was to jump off the building, which was just to jump from a piece of carpet in front of them to, that they were standing on to what was right in front of them. But many of them would shake and would be very afraid and have a very hard time taking that one-foot jump. Well, I'm watching them knowing they're going to make me do this, and I don't like looking like a fool. So as I'm sitting there on the couch watching them all do this, I'm staring at the ground in front of their feet, and I'm letting the image of that ground burn into my brain. And then when I put the glasses on and my turn came, I could see the ground in front of me, and I could jump one foot in front of me. Why? Because the truth was burned into my brain. Let your kids have the truth of God's Word burned into their brains. 
And so when they face the lies of this world, they can see the truth. They will know the truth. And we're going to move very quickly through this, but I want to give you nine essentials to teach your kids to see everything through a biblical lens. Nine essentials. Number one, they need to see everything as God-centered. We need to see everything as God-centered. The world cannot be understood when we see ourselves as the center of the universe. Make sure that our kids learn to see everything from God's perspective and His ultimate purposes, not their own. Number two, make sure they know that Jesus is Lord, that Jesus is King. He reigns, we serve Him, not the other way around. Number three, teach your kids the gospel. Teach your kids the gospel. Raise them in the gospel. I think it's healthy and appropriate to treat them them as children of God until they show by word or deed that they are not. But don't assume that they are children of God until they have reached a level of maturity where genuine fruit is shown. Treat them as if they are, but don't assume it until you see real fruit. Too many have thought that their children were following Jesus only to find out when they grew old that they wander away from the truth. And they place their hope and their faith on the fact that they remember when their kids prayed and asked Jesus into their heart. Asking Jesus into your heart is not in the Bible. Dying to yourself, picking up your cross, repenting, believing, those are the calls to follow Jesus. Those are the signs of a new heart which will bear fruit. So treat them as children of God, but don't assume that they are. But make sure that they know the gospel. And all of this is still part of point three, teach your kids the gospel. I want to give you, what do they... There's some basic things to make sure they know about the gospel. Teach them that all have sinned against an infinite God, a perfect God, a holy God, an infinitely valuable God. Teach them that the wages of sin is death, and that sin is measured primarily based on who you have sinned against, not just what you have done. If I'm in my house and I punch the wall of my house and put a hole in it, I'm going to be disappointed that I have a hole in my house. If I go to your house, punch a hole in the wall of your house, you're going to make me pay to repair the wall in your house. If I take that same motion and I punch you, you're going to punch me back. The consequences escalate based on who I am offending. If I punch a police officer, I will end up in jail. If I punch the President of the United States, I will probably be shot and killed. It's the same action in every case. The consequences are based on who you sin against. We have sinned against a holy, perfect, infinite God, and the consequences are infinite. Make sure your children know the consequences of their sin because of who they have sinned against. Make sure they know that Jesus is our substitute on the cross, that He died in our place, that He became sin for us. Make sure they know that Jesus rose from the dead, conquering sin, proving His worthiness. Make sure that they know that we are saved by faith alone in Jesus alone, and we can do nothing to save ourselves but look to the Son of God who died in our place as the worthy sacrifice for our infinite debt. Make sure your kids know the gospel. Number four, teach them that all Scripture is profitable. Show your kids how there's profit in every part of Scripture. Number five, teach them that morality is defined by the Bible. Whoever or whatever defines right and wrong is God, or is at least trying to be God. If you are determining what right and wrong is to you, then you're trying to be God. But God is God, and He speaks what is right and wrong. Teach them that. Teach them that we're not citizens of this world, that our citizenship is in heaven. We're not going to find true joy if our hearts are not longing for home. Teach them that all will suffer, but that the suffering of this present time does not compare to the glory that is to come. 
Teach them that God is sovereign and trustworthy. Show them and tell them. In Romans 4, it says that Abraham grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he promised. Teach them that God is sovereign and trustworthy. And lastly, teach them that this world is broken, but Jesus wins. And so we look toward Jesus. Teach your children to love Jesus. Teach them to love His church. Teach them to see everything through a biblical lens. And then one bonus point. Teach them to love Jesus. Might sound familiar, but we're ending up where we started. Teach them to love Jesus. Teach them to love Jesus more than they love sin. The reason people sin is they love the darkness more than the light. Teach them that Jesus is better. Don't just tell them not to sin. Don't just tell them what's bad. Show them that Jesus is better. Too often we teach only about the fact that Jesus died on the cross for our sins and rose again. And yes, in Revelation 5, it points us to the fact that we are going to sing for forever, worthy is the Lamb who was slain. That is going to be the foundation of our worship. But is the cross the aim of our joy or the foundation of our joy? Is the cross the culmination of our joy? Or is it the ground on which we stand to reach for even higher joys in knowing Jesus. The worthiness of Jesus is not because he was slain. He was slain so that we could be redeemed and see him for the treasure that he is. You're in the ocean. You're out too far, caught in a riptide, about to drown. Then out of nowhere comes a powerful swimmer. He comes and rescues you and takes you safely to shore, and you are grateful. But then soon after, you see the swimmer on TV in the Olympics, and you become his biggest fan, and you watch and you cheer because he saved your life, and he wins the gold, and you cheer some more. And then he wins another gold, and another, and another. And soon, while you never forget that he saved your life, you're amazed at who he is as a swimmer, not just that he saved your life. Jesus saved you, but watch him, know him, and know and see that he is so much more, and let your awe for him grow in all that he is, and teach your children to be in awe of all that Jesus is, even beyond the cross. Yes, we need to emphasize the cross. It's the center of the glory of God. It's the bullseye. But it's not the whole story. There is an inexhaustible supply of goodness and greatness in Jesus. Tune your hearts to this joy and teach that to your children. The verse that's been weighing on me for many months now is 1 Peter 3.18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. That's why he went to the cross, to bring us to God, not just to save us from hell, but to bring us to him. Love Jesus. Teach your kids to love Jesus. Show them Jesus. Show them the cross, but then stand on the cross and reach for Jesus. Peter says, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus. Set your hope fully on the grace that is to come. Lean into that. Show your kids how to look for Jesus, to look forward to Him, to know Him, to love Him, to look forward and not just backward. We're going to finish in about five minutes. 
I'm going to do something a little bit different. I'm just going to ask you to hang with me and kind of go with me on this. Imagine that you're walking through a field and you come across an old well. You walk up to the well's edge and it's clearly very deep. You cannot see the bottom of it, but just a few feet down in the well, there's a flash of light. And as you look closer, there's something, a small object of some kind suspended in midair, and it catches the sunlight just right. Its glistening exterior seems to demand your attention. You lean over to look more closely. It's actually not reflecting the sun. It's its own light source. You can't tell what it is, but there is something just captivating about this sparkle of light. The more you look at it, the more you want to have it, to possess this thing, whatever it is. And the way that the light changes and shifts as the object spins at varying angles captures your attention. You reach down and try to grasp it, stretching, stretching, but it's just beyond your reach. You stand straight, gather yourself, steady your stance, and you reach again, fingers stretched out. You almost have it, but then your weight shifts. You lose your footing and you tumble into the well. The gleaming object moves downward as if clearing a way for your fall. And fall you do, head down, hurtling down the well. And the object falls in front of you, just out in front of you. At first, you panic, adrenaline surging, but you keep falling. The bottom of the well is not in sight. Eventually, your eyes lock again on this object and you become consumed with reaching it. You stretch out again. Your sense of falling disappears and it's all about reaching that elusive light. You continue to fall down this seemingly bottomless well, but so fixated on your new obsession, you actually forget about the fall. It's all about possession. Time passes. The fall becomes the new norm. The shiny light is all that matters. Then out of nowhere, the walls of the well begin to expand, ever widening until there are no walls at all. Then the unreachable light, the light you've been straining for all this time, it disappears. The light goes out and you're left in total darkness, but only for a moment, because soon enough another light appears far below you, but this light is different. Though it is not yet bright in your eyes, you can tell that it is very, very bright, and with every second it becomes bigger and brighter. Soon your sense of falling is re-engaged. That light you now see, it's from the ground or the bottom of the well or something, but you are moving toward it and you're very aware of the speed of your fall as you hurtle toward it. And as you fall, the darkness around you begins to fade, the light from below infiltrating the dark chasm. And as your surroundings light up, you realize that you have fallen into a whole new realm. You would look around and take it all in, but there's only one thing that you can look at now, the ground. It's coming fast now. You are certain of one thing. You are going to die. But then... You see a man on the ground, a man, a man in this new realm, and there is something about this man. He seems both incredibly strong and incredibly gentle at the same time. He is watching you fall, and he seems to care, but your trajectory is taking you to fall some distance from where he is. The closer to the ground you fall, you see him more and more clearly, and you think that it seems that he is moving, moving toward you, or at least to where you'll smash into the ground. And something in you tells you that He is your only hope, that there is no other hope except somehow, some way, this man can save you. So now while you once strained to reach toward that small object with the light that captivated your attention, you now turn all of your attention to contort your body and reach, move, strain, push, trying to direct your fall toward the man. It's no use. You have no control at all over your fall. Still, He is all you have and you give everything to move toward Him. 
Impossibly, though, you see that he is moving toward you. On the ground, awaiting collision with the ground. And then it happens. You are careening toward the ground, but he is there. You can see him now. Arms stretched out, waiting for you. You reach out and your body slams into him. You wince, cringe, expecting the worst. But you feel nothing. Just the softest of landings cushioned by the man. You come to your senses and stand, checking everything and finding that you're perfectly okay. More than okay. But then you look at the man and it hits you. Your fall has killed him. He's clearly dead. Your mind is racing, then flooded by guilt and shame. It is your insatiable desire. It was your insatiable desire to possess that shiny object that led to your fall. If you had not been so enamored with the silly light, you would never have fallen. And your fall killed this man. He saved your life. Your eyes are filled with tears as the weight of your actions lands heavily, and you fall again, this time to your knees. Time passes, but you're unaware as you are consumed by emotion. You have no sense at all of your surroundings. You're simply overwhelmed by the reality that your lust for the light has resulted in disaster. Your head is down and your body now exhausted when you hear a voice. Welcome. It's all okay. And when you look up, you see it's the man. He stands before you completely healthy, and he is smiling, full of joy that you are with him. Your mouth is stopped, words don't come. Now you are overwhelmed in a whole new way. But that sense of wonder is about to be dwarfed. The man gestures all around him and your eyes follow to where he points. And you realize that you are in a world of unfathomable beauty, a creation that mesmerizes and floods the senses with awe. Your eyes fail you not because they cannot see, they just simply cannot take in everything that lies before you. You turn back to the man and somehow you inherently know he is responsible for all of this. He is the one who made it all. And somehow it is all a reflection of him. His mark, his fingerprints are all over it. And you look to his face as he says, it's for you. This is for you. And you know that it is. You know that this is what you were meant for. This world and this person. Now as you stand there, what consumes your thoughts? Your emotions? Your attention? Is it that you were falling to your death and this man saved you by giving his life? Is it that he was clearly dead, but he came back to life? Is it that he made such beauty all around you? Is it that all of this beauty reflects deeper things about who he is? Is it that as an expression of love, he made it for you? I would suggest that in that moment, you are keenly aware of all of those things. But the realities of these things are not what consumes your attention. What consumes your attention? It's just the man. Be aware of all that Jesus is doing and has done. See it everywhere. Praise him for it. And make that all clear to your kids. But be consumed with the man. Point your kids not just to what he does, but to him. Teach them to love Jesus, to love his church, and to see everything through a biblical lens. Lord, thank you for this morning. Thank you that you are God and that you have revealed yourself to us. God, thank you that you call us to the greatest of joys in knowing Jesus. Lord, I thank you that you allow us to come before your throne 
boldly because of the blood of Jesus. And so help us to point our children to Jesus, to love his church, and to see everything through the lens of your word. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. coming up in one week is our annual praise gathering. We'd encourage you to sign up for that. Plan to be here. Um, Great time to gather with God's people and remember what he has done in this last year. Colossians chapter 1 verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Amen. Sovereign in the mountain air, sovereign on the ocean floor.